I'll be reading from the book of James, chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. This is the word of the God. As we continue this morning in our toxic series, James is going to refer to an experience that each of us in this room has experienced, whether that is as a believer in this room or as a non-believer in this room. And James is talking about the issue of temptation. In week one, we looked at the seriousness of sin in week two we looked at sin as rebellion and today we're going to look at temptation and the anatomy of sin and how that happens um this week you may have been tempted i know i'm tempted each week Uh, i'm tempted to eat too much um, especially if i go to a buffet um I'm tempted to get frustrated sometimes um, when I see things that I don't understand. And when, um, when I see things I don't understand or people doing things I don't necessarily agree with, I get frustrated. And, and this used to happen when I would watch a TV show called when animals attack. I don't know if anyone's ever, ever watched that. It was on a few years ago, but they would have, um, people who, Maybe at a zoo, or maybe they have a pet, but they don't want a normal pet, do they? So you take a guy, like a guy named Tim, and and Tim uh, wants to get a cat, but Tim doesn't want to go get a cat down the street at the animal shelter. Tim wants a big cat, doesn't he? So Tim gets a Bengal tiger, and Tim takes this Bengal tiger, and he puts a leash on it, and he walks it at the park. And everybody's like, wow, that guy's got a bingo tiger. And then he just, he starts to feed it. And as it's growing, it's getting bigger. And then it won't fit in the car anymore. And then he's not able to take it to the park anymore. And he just has to kind of leave it in the backyard. And then it's bigger than he is. And at the final stage of this, it just gets unmanageable and too big to control. And so what inevitably happens is Tim is taking the daily steak out to his Bengal tiger and the tiger thinks, you know what, Tim, I don't want that steak today. Tim, you look like the steak, right? And, and the animal attacks him because it's bigger than him. And ultimately it has a killer instinct. Now we see that and that frustrates us and we think, how, how does Tim not know that the tiger is going to kill him? But in our own lives, we have something that we deal with each and every day that James tells us has a killer instinct. And that is temptation that leads to sin. And one thing I know for sure, whether you are a follower of Christ or a critic of Christ in this room, is you've been tempted. Tempted to do something wrong. 
We know that temptation in itself is not a sin because Christ was tempted, yet he was without sin. But it's what we do with that temptation that leads to death. I'm sure when you hear the word temptation, you may have something that automatically comes to your mind. Something that you personally deal with. Something that is almost like a dark cloud that goes with you wherever you go. Men, if I gave you a choice to go in a room by yourself where there's four things on a table, those four things are a thousand dollars, a bottle of alcohol, a stash of drugs, and a computer open to pornography, which one would you first run to? Women, if you are in this room and you go to that same room, except on the table is a miracle weight loss pill, the same thousand dollars, the same bottle of alcohol, and then a letter from the guy that you thought you were going to marry asking you to meet. Which one would you be inclined to pick up? Sometimes when we come to church, we think maybe church is the last place that I want to talk to someone about my temptation. But the great thing about the gospel is that Christ died for us so that we can all talk about how jacked up we are, right? I mean, we all come in here with things that drag us down. Christ died for your sins so that you can have life and you can have eternal life. And in a community, you can get help with that temptation. So in the context of James, James is writing to believers who are scattered after Stephen is martyred in Acts chapter 7. The church began to be persecuted and they were in different cities. They were in different locations. And he is writing to encourage them so that they can stay strong in their faith. See, in, in their context, they didn't have a place like this that they could go and they could get encouragement. And they could talk about those things. Some of them had just went to a new city and they had just believed a few years ago and they were out on their own. And they were running into temptations. They were running into struggles. Some of us probably feel the same way. Let's look at verse 13. It says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. If you walk out of here and you remember nothing else from today, I want you to remember this. God uses tests to deepen your faith. Sin tempts us to devour your faith. God uses tests to deepen your faith. Sin tempts us to devour our faith. James had just finished speaking in the beginning part of chapter one about how you can have triumph over trials and tests and in them. So why would he link these two ideas of trials and tests and temptations? 
because he knows our human nature. That when we get into a situation, we tend to blame others. So that brings us to the first of three things we're going to see about the anatomy of sin. And that is God does not tempt us. We just saw that in verse 13. God cannot and will not tempt us to evil. He does, however, test us. And when we are in the middle of that test, that is when Satan comes with the opportunity for sin through temptation. See, in verse 16 and 17, if you read on, it says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. He's saying, in this temptation... God is not going to change who he is. He is not going to tomorrow on Monday begin to operate in a different mode. He is the same, only giving good, only giving perfect gifts to you. But what we do when we get to that trial and that test is we want to blame someone and the first person we blame is God. We think, why would he put us through this? Why is he doing this to us? We go into self-preservation mode. We push the blame off on someone else. And if you don't believe me in that, we can walk over into the three-year-old room when they make a mess and we'll just see what happens. Because if you have a little kid in here, you know what's going to happen. You walk up to them, you go, what's going on over here? Who made this mess? And they get quiet And they look like they saw a ghost and they point, right? And they point to somebody else. You know, it wasn't me. I didn't do it. But we do the exact same thing with God sometimes when we go through trials and we go through temptation. We know that the depth of your faith and the depth of your character has to be tested. Otherwise, how will we know that it's going to stand up in tough times? If they don't come, how will we know? God's purpose in saving you and making you more like his son is not so that you can live in ease and comfort. It is to mature you. And sometimes he does that in a painful way. The tests that come into our lives are hurtful. But we can see in Romans 5, in verses 3 and 4, Paul writing here, he says, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that sufferings produce endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. That's why testing is important. Because that testing is going to produce your spiritual growth. You want to be a mature Christian. If you are a Christian, you want to be seeking after Christ. And sometimes the test comes. If you are a parent of a teenager in here, you can relate to that 100%. Because your child is going to come to you one day and they're going to say, Mom, Dad, can I borrow the keys to the car? And then you're thinking, hmm, 
are they mature enough to take the car out? That's what we think. Because if they went on their driving test or you let them borrow the car the week before and they ran off the road into every mailbox between here and the store, you're probably not going to give them the keys, are you? They're not mature enough to handle that. The testing of our faith is going to show the level of our maturity. And as Christians, we should want that to continue to grow. This is where we see the cycle of temptation kick in because we assume God is tempting us. In a financial difficulty, we're tempted to say, well, God's not going to provide. Look what he's doing for me. I lost my job. In the death of a loved one, we're, we're drawn to say, well, God doesn't love me. Why would, he, why would he cause my family member to die? If we feel alone, we think that God doesn't care and that God is distant. And if you're here today and you're at any of those places, God can come and lovingly wrap his arms and his spirit around you and guide you back to where you need to be. But that place can be toxic. This cycle of sin in our lives will begin when we give in to temptation. But not only does God not tempt us, but you are a danger to yourself. I don't know if you knew that walking in here, but you are a danger to yourself. Let's read verse 14 together. Verse 14 says this. It says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Now, after James has just said, Well, God's not tempting you. We would be inclined to think that he's automatically going to say, Well, you know, It's all Satan's fault. So just kind of watch out for him and you'll be okay. No, what he does is he holds up a mirror and he says, the temptations that you're facing are from you. From the desire inside of you. He doesn't allow any room to question that. And he's very direct. From our desire. When I'm tempted, it is because of the desires within me. Now, that doesn't mean that Satan is not involved in giving us opportunities for sin. But that temptation is squarely on you for that desire. Again, Paul in Romans chapter 7, listen to the way he writes this. He says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. He's saying there is nothing good in me. There is a problem at the core of each and every person in this room. Our desires. It's not our upbringing. It's not your spouse. It's not your boss. It's not your circumstance or your situation. Those things only bring out what is inside of you. And that is where we begin 
to dig into the anatomy of what sin is. And the first step in that is deception. See, no temptation ever appears as a temptation. Deception is in the way that you think, your intellect. In week one, Jerry talked to us about how um, the Satan through the serpent came and questioned Eve. And he, and he said, did God really say? And he made her question the way she was thinking about God, about his provision. He made her think, you know what? God's holding out on you. Can you believe he would do that to you? God is holding out on you. And when we begin to be deceived in our thoughts, we're beginning on the road to sin. He uses two interesting images here that are from the hunting and fishing world. He says, um, lured and enticed. That lured just means drawn away. And that's something that would be a hunting term that would mean you can distract your prey away from an area or a group in order to kill it. Now, I'm not a hunter, okay? But I've watched enough Duck Dynasty to know that you can use a call to draw someone away, okay? Um, I'm sure you have too. And you can be drawn away. You can draw an animal away from a group, from its safety, or from a person. What Satan does is he will come along and draw us away from God. You see, when you're, to use James' analogy, when you're fishing and you throw the lure in, the fish is never thinking about the hook. The fish is never thinking about the hook. The fish is thinking about the bait solely. But it's the hook that kills. And it's the hook that drags away. And in our own lives, when we focus on the deception, we will be lured and enticed and drawn away by that deception. See, that's why we are a danger to ourselves. It's the same reason why in the Old Testament, David was deceived in his thinking that he did not need to be in battle with his troops. He was in the bed taking a nap when he should have been in battle. And when he did that, that is how he was lured, enticed, and drawn away by Bathsheba to sin. It began with his incorrect thinking. So, deception for the believer always begins as a small thing, and you're not focusing on the hook. You think it doesn't matter. It's just something that you can slide by. Like we think God's going to see what we're doing and just kind of wink at it and be like, don't do that. Come on. Right? Just ladies, it's incorrect thinking. If you get that message on Facebook from the old boyfriend and you set that lunch date. It's just, just lunch. I mean, what's wrong with that? But that's deception. Or men, you're at home alone on your computer and you click on images that you know are wrong, but you're drawn to. And you think, 
I mean, five minutes, a couple of clicks, and what's it going to hurt? That's deception. Or young people and teenagers and singles in here, you might say, well, you know, we just, we, we kind of text some stuff that we probably shouldn't sometimes. But you know what? It's just text. I mean, who are we hurting? And that's deception. And that's the first step of being lured and drawn away to sin. And deception will short circuit your relationship with Christ. And if you're here and you don't have a relationship with Christ and you're questioning Christianity, the temptation and the lure I'm talking about, you have no hope of stopping that. Not only deception, but the second part of the anatomy of sin is desire. And at the end of that, he says, Lord enticed by his own desire. In the Greek, the words, their own desire, they don't just translate as desire. They translate as over desire. So what James is doing for these early Christians is he is from the beginning laying out that there are normal God-given desires and there are over desires. Hunger is a normal God-given desire. And gluttony is an over-desire, isn't it? Affection is a normal desire. But fornication is an over-desire. Wanting intimacy with your spouse is a normal desire. Wanting intimacy with someone that is not your spouse is an over-desire. Culture might tell us that this is our Achilles heel. Culture might tell us that this is our guilty pleasure. But no matter what they call it, it's toxic in our lives. And as we think about being drawn away and something that is that has such a grip on us, I don't know if you've ever heard the story about how to catch a monkey, but this is true how, how people do this in other countries. They... They know that they're not able to just get a monkey. I mean, they're in trees and they're swinging around and you're not going to get a monkey. So how do you get it? You have to draw it away and entice it and lure it. So what they do is they will, they'll take a, a hole and dig it out in the earth or they'll take a large tree trunk and they'll dig a hole out in the middle of that. And they'll put something that's like a coconut that's hollowed out with a hole just big enough for the monkey to put its arm in. Inside is going to be a banana or something that the monkey is going to like to eat. So the, the monkey will come down, put its hand through, and when it grabs the banana, it thinks it can just pull its hand back out. But the hole is not big enough to get back out of. So I think all of us in this room would go, drop the banana. But do you know what the monkey does? The monkey holds the banana grips it until it's so exhausted that it finally drops it. Its head drops from exhaustion. And then the person that's luring it and trapping it comes and puts a noose around its neck and drags it away to enslavement or death. Now, 
if we think of that in our spiritual life, we as Christians have been told by scripture that we are free from sin. So these desires in our life can and will enslave us and ultimately lead us to death, as James is going to tell us. When that desire becomes so great that it overtakes our will, that is where we are in trouble. Now, I ask you to think of maybe some temptations earlier or whatever your desire is. And the temptation that maybe God's brought to your mind that you've been dealing with this week, I bet is very closely kin to that over-desire, whatever that is. And if God could point his finger at one thing today that you're dealing with, one thing that he wants you to say, this has to go, we've got to deal with this, but he wants to do it in a loving way, what would that be? You see, the purpose of temptation is to lead to sin and death. And sometimes from our misplaced deceptions and desires, we're led to that. And when our desire meets an opportunity and they cross, then we get to a place where we're in trouble because that leads us to the next step and that is disobedience. Temptation appeals to our desires and sin starts with disordered thought and leads to disordered desire and that leads to disobedience. So James takes the word picture now from hunting and fishing to the birth of a baby. James says that your desire will conceive a method for taking the bait. Let's read read verse 15. It says, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now, remember our illustration that we talked about of the tiger? Isn't this exactly what it was leading to? It was small, it grew, and when it was fully grown, the killer instinct took over. And with the, the sin that comes into our lives, we can't keep it as a pet. Matt Chandler says we have to kill the tiger. We have to get rid of it. It can't stay with us anymore. But the more that we can exercise God's will in our life and his purpose, the more we will follow that. In Philippians 2.13, it says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See, the more that you work out God's will in your life and you seek that, the more you'll follow that. But if you seek temptation, deception, and follow those desires, 
it will lead you to disobedience. And that temptation always promises fulfillment and satisfaction. But when you get to the point of disobedience, it leaves you unfulfilled and unsatisfied. During one of his series, Chip Ingram received a letter from an anonymous listener who described himself as in his mid-40s, balding and mildly rotund. He thinks highly of himself, doesn't he? He says, I was on a business trip by myself when I was surprised that a young flight attendant took an interest in me. As a married man, I was reluctant to agree to eat with her. But after a few drinks, I woke up in bed next to this beautiful blonde. You would think he would be fulfilled, right? He followed that desire. He was deceived. He had a desire and he went to disobedience. Let's listen to how this ends. Since that night, I've been feeling a sense of loss and unfulfillment. So I called the airline only to find out that she had given me a fake name, just like I did her. He goes on to talk about how he can't stop thinking about this young lady and how cheaters never win. Now, for some of you in this room, that hits nowhere close to home. That's not even in your ballpark. If that bait comes out, you're not going to buy it. But for some of you, it might. But if you're not, if you're here and you're not cheating on your spouse, chances are there is something in your life where you're cheating on God. It doesn't have to be an affair for you to be cheating on God. I love how in the book of Jeremiah chapter 2, God talks about how his people have forsaken him. And I want you to listen to how he describes this. In Jeremiah 2.13, it says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. You see, in that time, a man would work for months from bedrock by hand, hewing out a well, a cistern for his family to have water for a year to be satisfied. But the way that God tells Jeremiah to say this illustrates that that man would wake up after the rain came at night, hoping to walk out and see a full cistern of water only to find it's empty because it's broken and there's a crack in it. God wants us to see that the only way we are filled is by going to him. He refers to himself as the fountain of living water in that text. And that's the only way that we find fulfillment is through that. And that brings us to our third and final point and the last place and the last end of the anatomy of sin. And that's death. See, Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. And in verse 15, we saw that our disobedience, 
this luring and enticing will lead to death. Temptation promises life, but only delivers death. James says that is the final result of this toxic thing we deal with every day called sin. Now, it might not immediately lead to physical death. And it might take years. It might not happen tomorrow. But what will happen is for some of your over-desires, it will the death, it will be killing your marriage. The over-desire will be killing your health. It will be killing your spiritual walk. It will be killing your worship. And it will kill your future. We have to take this toxic thing of sin seriously because we know the ultimate end. But I want you to know that James, in the middle of the trials and temptations, in verse 12, gives us a, a verse of hope. Read verse 12 with me. It says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Now, this crown he's talking about is not one with jewel, it's crusted with jewels and it's gold like you and I would think about. If someone in his day heard this, they would think of a wreath that's put on the head of someone who won an event at a race, at something like the Olympic Games. And they would get that at the end of the race. What this is saying is not a physical crown, but that at the end of your life, if you pursue righteousness... That Jesus will be there to give you eternal life. If you're here and you are not a Christian, you don't have that hope, but you can. You might be in that cycle of sin, but you can walk away from that. Christian, if, if Jesus came today, how would he find you running your race? What are you chasing? And I know it's hard and I know we fall and we are tempted and we sin. But we have a heavenly father who cares. Just like in 1992, Derek Redmond, he was a sprinter on the Olympic team for Great Britain. And during that, he was running the 400 meters, which is known universally as basically the fastest men in the world competition. And this guy had a chance to medal. This guy had given his whole life and worked his whole life to win this race. Everything he had, he had put in it. And I want you to watch what happens.
You know who the gentleman that came to help Derek Redmond was? His dad. He worked so hard in his tribe. And he got in the middle of his race. And he couldn't go anymore. And in verse 12, as James tells us that there is a, a race that we can win a crown for that Christ will be at the end of. He's not only going to be there at the end. He can come and help you run the race. When you fall. When we give into temptation. When your over desire knocks you down and you can't run anymore. Your heavenly father can come down and he will walk you through. If you're here today and God has talked to you about whatever that over desire is, there's two things that you need to do. You need to be brutally honest and you need to take immediate action. Be brutally honest with yourself and take immediate action for whatever that is. And I would encourage you, find someone that you trust to talk with about that. As the worship team comes, if you need to just come like Derek Redmond did and cry on your dad's shoulder, you can do that. If you need to come and talk to Jerry, he'll be down here. But if God's talked to you today, take immediate action. Let's pray.